Hello, I'm Amber Athey, The Spectator's Washington editor, and I'm here to encourage you to subscribe to The Spectator's American edition. If you visit spectator.us forward slash subscribe, you can get our print and digital edition for just $7.99 a month. This means you get unlimited access to our amazing website and we'll send you a beautiful 80-page monthly magazine. You'll also have access to our mobile app. Subscribe now at spectator.us forward slash subscribe. You won't regret it. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and now the Joe Biden presidency. We will be looking at how a 78-year-old president will change America and we'll be asking if normalcy, which is what he promised to bring, has returned to American politics? The answer, of course, is no. I'm joined today by Michael Lind, who is author of many good books, but uh, most recently, The New Class War. Uh, He's also a professor at the University of Texas. Michael, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. I want to talk to you today about Bidenomics and whether it is working. Over the weekend, there was quite a lot of hullabaloo about the global tax initiative um, that the G7 countries appear to have agreed. And this is to set a floor on corporation tax at 15%. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think it's an effective idea? Um, Do you think it will be enforced, implemented? No, I don't think it uh, is enforceable. Uh, given the number of tax havens in, in the world, from the Jersey Islands to the Cayman Islands, uh, Panama, and various others, these are sovereign countries. Unless you're going to invade them or sanction them, uh, it seems unlikely that you can enforce this. Moreover, if you really want to collect a lot of money, uh, you should go after individuals, not after uh, corporations. So it's very irritating and angering that companies like Apple should use the double Dutch maneuver and subsidiaries in Ireland and things like that to evade the corporate income tax Mm. perspective. Uh, The corporate income tax is a very small percentage of the revenue, both in Europe and in the United States. It's less than 10% of all the revenue raised. The the big uh, revenue raisers are uh, consumption tax, the value added tax uh, in Europe, uh, income tax and payroll tax. Uh, and it's much easier to, although still difficult, to go after uh, individuals, uh, wealthy individuals, uh, than it is uh, after corporations. And there's a final problem with uh, corporate income taxes. Uh, the multinational corporations, particularly the ones that deal in intangible property, like intellectual property rights, uh, can say that they realize their profits in various jurisdictions, and, and who's to say, mm. right? realize their profits, you know, for an algorithm in Ireland rather than in California. Brick and mortar manufacturers, small businesses, national manufacturers cannot escape. You can't park your factory in the Cayman Islands. Uh, And that means that any corporate tax uh, increase is going to fall most heavily on small manufacturers and domestic manufacturers, uh, the very ones that at least in the United States, the Biden administration says, it's trying to help. So I think it's uh, an unrealistic solution to what is, in the grand scheme of things, a relatively minor problem. 
So do you think it's a, uh, I mean, it's an overused term, do you think it's a sort of virtue signalling gesture, as in a, a, a sort of, um, we're standing up to the big evil corporations without actually uh, standing up to them in any significant way? Yeah, I think that's right. And it's also a diversion from uh, taxing rich people. Uh, so ProPublica has a new report out based on the data, which they got, of Warren Buffett, of uh, George Soros and others, showing that they pay negligible uh, taxes on their overall uh, income, if you want to call it that, that is both their capital gains income and their regular uh, wage salaries, which tend to be set very small. If you're a billionaire, most of your income comes from capital gains, from the assets you own. They're taxed at a very low rate in the United States and uh, also in Europe because there was a competition to lower capital gains rates to attract investment uh, on both sides of the Atlantic a decade or two ago. So uh, if you really want to go after money, then raise the uh, uh, capital gains tax rate uh, to make it equal the income tax rate. That will generate probably far more revenue uh, but uh, the, the, than the corporate tax, but under the regular income tax system. Uh, but if you do that, uh, you know, then you, you can't you know, sort of play this populist card that it's the evil corporations as distinct from the rich uh, owners and shareholders who are the problem. Am I right in thinking the Biden administration has said it may do that on capital gains for individuals, as as well as uh, the highest rate of of income tax? I think they've said that uh, anyone above earning above four hundred thousand dollars a year will be taxed; otherwise, they won't pay any more. Well, the Biden administration is very interesting because uh, it represents, in my view, the professional class, mm. not rich, but also not the working class majority. So uh, if you look at it, it makes perfect sense. If you're a professional making $100,000, uh, $200,000, know, $400,000 a year uh, in the United States to say, oh, yeah, well, look, those rich people evading their taxes, right? They're talking about billionaires. Yeah. Let's soak the billionaires. But during the campaign, uh, Biden promised that taxes would not go up for anyone making less than 400,000 a year. Well, if you make less than 400,000 or make around $400,000 a year in the top 1%. Mm. And this pattern with the Democratic Party is it has become the party of the elite in the United States. If you go back to 2016, over Clinton, I think the cutoff rate was 200,000 a year. Mm. Being the and, and you would not pay a penny more in taxes. Uh, and then if you look at the spending side, and we can go into more detail at that, the priorities are largely those that benefit uh, upper middle class, as we call them in the U.S., middle class, as you call them in Britain, households. Uh, it's free daycare for a professional class, two-earner couples benefit the most from it. Uh, it's it's uh, free college. Only a minority of uh, students, mostly from affluent families, go to universities in the United States. So... So in a way, it can be seen as the professionals trying to uh, raise money from the people above them to spend money on their professional class priorities. Mm. But they actually seem to even be delaying doing that because, uh, I mean, certainly the first 100 days of the administration, and let's talk about the spending here, have been trillion-dollar stimulus packages, trillion-dollar infrastructure spending, trillions and trillions being spent and this is perhaps a, a, a boring conservative critique of it, but no real 
clear idea of how they want to raise the money to pay for all this spending beyond vastly expanding the national debt? Well, on, on the contrary, I think that they said they want to raise it through uh, taxes on the rich and on corporations. And you think that you think they'll push ahead with those taxations? Well, 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 this is the interesting thing, because the Democrats rely far more on a small number of wealthy billionaire donors than do the Republicans, who have lots of, you could call them small millionaires scattered throughout the country. Mm. So it's depend disproportionately on rich people. But the Republicans tend to have the small rich, and uh, the Democrats increasingly the big rich. Now, it may very well be. Uh, that the big rich, uh, the the liberal billionaires are so rich that they will consent to their taxes going up. But the fact that they go to great lengths, you know, to avoid taxation, just as much as Republican rich do, you know, to, to my mind raises questions about this. Uh, I, I think when it, if you're going to raise spending, and it has to be raised in the United States, whether by the Republicans or the Democrats, merely to meet obligations under Social Security and Medicare for working class, middle class people, taxes have got to go up. And that becomes a distributional issue, right? You know, do you cut spending? Well, there's no appetite for that. So taxes will have to go up. Uh, So when it comes to ordinary spending on the welfare state and entitlements, history has shown that inescapable taxes like consumption taxes, like property taxes, sales tax in the U.S., although they they tend to be regressive, uh, are the only way you can really finance big government. If you look at uh, Nordic democracies like Sweden, they they actually had not only capital flight, but also capitalist flight in the 1970s and 80s, you know, when people, rich Swedes began to flee, undermining their whole system. And so the Swedish left decided uh, we have to have inescapable taxes. Uh, we can't simply soak a small number of rich people and redistribute the income. But that means you can have progressive spending can neutralize the regressive effects. Uh, now when it comes to infrastructure, uh, you want to borrow money. Uh, you know, in the United States, states and cities have bonds. You, you issue bonds uh, mm. to build ways and schools and things like that. So. So it just seems perverse uh, to say, as the Biden administration has done, that we will have this massive infrastructure program, but we won't pay for it with deficit spending. We'll pay for it, at least in theory, by raising taxes on the rich and, and corporations. Well, I, I, what you were saying about the billionaires reminds me of when I think Warren Buffett said something like, it was in the Obama administration, he said, you know, somebody like me should be paying more tax. And I remember a another rich, slightly lesser rich American saying, well, there's, there's nothing stopping you giving it away. But well, that's, if you... that's a debating point. Yeah. Under Reagan, Reagan, somewhat reluctantly, uh, but to get the ta- his tax reforms through, raised the capital gains tax. It was equal yes. to the income tax. So that was a Reagan administration policy. It was actually under uh, Bill Clinton and subsequent presidents uh, that, and the Europeans are to blame for this. They began this arms race in order to attract foreign direct investment. Uh, European countries began lowering the capital gains uh, tax rate in the 1990s. So this is not some kind of libertarian Reagan era thing, the, mm. uh, the divergence between the capital gains rate. Now, it's argued that this is double taxation because yeah. corporate 
corporations uh, uh, already pay taxes. Uh, but in the case of the truly super rich, not only do they avoid taxation uh, through various mechanisms, but their companies avoid taxation too. So, so that doesn't seem like a very plausible argument to me. Do you think that a lot of the Biden administration talk about taxation is based on a fear of inflation that they aren't willing to talk about very directly, but it certainly seems like a way of keeping taxation under control is certainly to threaten, uh, sorry, keeping inflation under control is certainly to threaten tax rises. Well, that's the theory of modern monetary theory on the left. Hmm. Just print money and if inflation appears, then you, you have taxation. I would be very much surprised. I don't, I don't think that's the case. Uh, you know, that would be a true example of the horseshoe theory of politics. If the neoliberal Biden administration and the far left modern monetary theory people agreed, I think it's just it's coalitional incoherence. Uh, yeah. As well as coalitions, including the, the Republicans as well as the Democrats, uh, you just have different forces in the party pushing for different things. And you can put them all in a numbered list and make a, a platform out of it, but they may be intellectually and practically incompatible. Well, what do we know? I mean, Janet Yellen does seem to be quite progressive in her thinking on on taxation. And we know that uh, the Biden team are keen on, is it Stephanie Kelton, the deficit myth author? Right. Um, And she's associated with modern monetary theory. Yes, exactly. She's friendlier to um, really permanent deficit spending. And and you're not, as as, uh, somebody who studied this quite a lot, you're not allergic to... Uh, large deficit spending, are you? Well, not given the world economy of the last 30 years. Uh, So, you know, wage push inflation was a problem in the 1960s and 70s, which even Keynesian economists recognize. That is, uh, if if unionized sectors of the economy, uh, like coal and steel and automobiles, if the workers pushed for uh, raises in advance of productivity growth and then the uh, in economic growth in general. Uh, and then the employers passed it along to consumers. Uh, and then the uh, central, uh, the treasuries printed money uh, in order to accommodate it. Well, then you did get, get a spiral of inflation. Mm. Uh, that was stopped rather brutally in the US by uh, Paul Volcker in the Federal Reserve by using mass unemployment. Uh, yeah. in- in a deliberately engineered crisis, which did more to wipe out U.S. manufacturing in the working class in the U.S. than uh, anything since the Great Depression, between the Great Depression and the Great Recession. But ever since then, this idea of runaway inflation, uh, you know, has, has just been this turnip ghost, uh, as you Brits say, to say, you know, which is just frightening people, when in fact, the major sources of inflation, high wages and bargaining power on the part of workers in the U.S. and around the world, uh, and supply constraints simply have not been in evidence. Uh, there was, right before the COVID-19 hit, uh, there, there was a, a tight labor market temporarily. But that was the result, in my view, of the boom that comes at the end of the, these 10-year recoveries. Yes. Uh, to recover from a financial crisis. It would not have lasted. Uh, And the Biden administration's immigration policy, if it succeeds, they want to raise legal immigration. They want amnesties for uh, illegal immigrants. 
which I support in some ways, you know, but essentially they want to expand the flow of uh, foreign labor into the U.S. labor market. Mm. Uh, they claim this does not have wage depressing effects. Of course it does in some areas. That's why employers lobby for it. Uh, you know, so it, it, there's a contradiction between having a tight labor market uh, that can cause wage push inflation and flooding the labor market uh, with uh, not only immigrant labor, but trying to get all mothers of young children into the workforce, which is the purpose, uh, more or less manifest, of the Biden administration's plans for universal federally paid for daycare. Mm. One, on the one hand, you're saying you're worried about inflation from rising wages. On the other, you're trying to massively enlarge the uh, labor market, right, which is going to stabilize wages, even if it doesn't repress it. So, so I don't think in mod- and, and if wages go up in the United States, given globalization, uh, at least the traded sector companies can always shut down their factories and open them up in a, in a low-wage country and ship them back. So, so I don't see where's this inflation going to come from. It, now, now, there can be like the chip shortage from East Asia, where there was so much dependence on chips from mm-hmm. a few sources. You can have particular shortages in particular supply chains. And to the extent that that ramifies through the economy, that can have inflationary aspects. But for the most part, I just don't see why we would worry about inflation. Didn't we have different types of inflation after 2008? So it wasn't retail inflation, it wasn't wage inflation, but we had... uh, Well, they used the term asset inflation. Yeah. But I think that that's that's kind of a misleading use of terminology. It really should be asset appreciation. Mm. It's not inflation in, in the traditional sense. It's, it's too many people bidding for uh, a few goods, uh, in, particularly in, in stocks and in real estate. You know, and that, that's a problem with Britain. It's a problem with the U.S. You know, if you have low productivity growth, you can make more money by flipping houses than by investing in, you know, like a long-term blue chip industrial company bond. But I think that, so asset inflation or appreciation that is a problem. It's a tremendous misallocation of resources. Uh, but I don't think it necessarily sends uh, inflation throughout the economy. So, for example, in Texas, where I am now, you know, there's enormous inward migration of people leaving California mm. because of prices. So that tends to mean that, that, at least when it comes to real estate inflation, that tends to be localized in particular areas. It doesn't necessarily affect the entire economy. Well, that's an interesting way in which America is is different to other countries, and you can in that you can have capital and capitalist flight within the country. Well, that's one of the strengths of, of the U.S. the federal system. Mm. It's bad when it has to do with wages, where you can have a race to the bottom in wages. Uh, but on the other hand, it is good having a re- relatively decentralized uh, federal economy with lots of of cities. In, in the UK, you tend to have the London metropolis mm. ate the rest of the country, and then this big hinterland. Uh, France is similarly centralized. I think Germany benefits, uh, and, and uh, maybe even Italy, from being more decentralized, like the United States. If I mean, from what you're saying, it seems to me then you, you think it's very hard to uh, make the labor market tighter. And... Well, the, the, I, listen, the, the best thing that could happen 
for American society would be 20 years of a tight labor market and labor shortages at the bottom. Every reform that has been undertaken by neoliberal Democrats and conservative Republicans for the last 30 years has been to lower wages and break the bargaining power of workers. Uh, whether it's through reclassifying employees as gig workers, offshore production to other countries, uh, you name it. Uh, you know, allowing the minimum wage to be eaten away by inflation. Uh, so a tight labor market uh, and, and so-called labor shortages. I love the definition of a labor shortage. You know what a labor shortage is? Uh, I'm an employer and I can't find workers willing to work for the low wages I'm willing to pay <laughs> is the popular definition of a labor shortage. Now, you know, uh, in, in even conservatives and libertarians, they pretend to believe in capitalism, but they think that somehow in the labor market, the law of supply and demand does not operate. Mm. So, you know, from my perspective, unless wages are skyrocketing in a sector, there is no labor shortage. We've seen legitimate labor shortages, for example, during the fracking boom uh, in, the, in Texas and Dakota, shot up. For welders, there was a shortage of welders, you know, to, to work with the oil and gas companies. Uh, but if you have farmers and ranchers and people who employ maids and so on saying that uh, uh, there's a shortage of labor, you know, uh, the retail companies, you name it, these low-wage uh, businesses, but unless they're dramatically raising wages, I don't believe there's a, wa- a labor shortage. Well, governments can try to up the minimum wage, and I think the Biden administration talked about doing that. Have they? They haven't done that yet, have they? Well, well, they wanted to do it through reconciliation, this rather arcane parliamentary maneuver, allows one party with a bare majority the ram legislation through in the U.S. Senate, as opposed to regular order, where you have to have a supermajority or at least overcome one, uh, and and their their resident parliamentarian said, no, this is not a purely budget-related matter, so you cannot use reconciliation. Uh, The problem is, again, with U.S. federalism, you know, what might be a living wage in New York or California uh, might, might, you know, really be overly generous Mm. in rural Idaho. Uh, And if you look at the U.K. uh, and Germany and uh, uh, many other European countries, Historically, the labor unions were opposed to minimum wages. They feared they would be maximum wages. They much preferred to negotiate wages in particular industries and occupations uh, without the government setting wages because they feared that business would control the government. So, so my own view is we need to build up the bargaining power of workers, uh, preferably through innovative new systems of some kind of collective bargaining or wage boards or something like that. And that's better than the rather crude and clumsy approach of the government trying to set wages or benefits for all occupations in all areas. Mm. And it seems to me that if the Biden administration uh, wants to tackle the billionaires and so on, not tightening the labour market and spending huge amounts of government money and also stimulus and so on, is a pretty surefire way of making the billionaires even more powerful and richer. Well, here you have to go back to the class contradictions, to use Marxist language, of the, uh, the democratic coalition. Uh, many professional uh, households, particularly two-earner couples, 
in expensive cities like New York City, San Francisco, Austin, Texas now, one of the most expensive cities in the country, mm. only barely hang on to their upper middle class status uh, thanks to cheap labor. You have low-wage nannies, you have low-wage uh, you know, maids, you have low-wage gardeners, and so on. If the price of the working poor goes up, then who's going to take care of the kids, right? If, if you, know, you can't afford a nanny. The super-rich can afford, they can you know, spend $100,000 on, on their valet or butler or whatever. Not the precarious upper-middle-class professionals. So at the end of the day, I think this professional-class alliance with the working poor in the Democratic Party, it's largely the immigrant working poor, many of whom work literally for the professionals. It's a, it's a fascinating thing historically. Uh, usually the servants have been in the party opposite that of their employers. Um, U.S. and Europe now, uh, they vote for the same people. Mm. You know, the, the uh, California professionals vote for the same Democratic Party that the recent immigrants do. And the reason is uh, ethnic, it's, it's ethnic voting. But if the Republicans were intelligent, uh, they would uh, you know, tell the pool cleaners and housemaids of uh, Beverly Hills to rebel against their, uh, their employers. Well, I'm not sure how intelligently this was courted, but certainly we did see in 2020 uh, in the election, we saw a Hispanic drift towards Trump, particularly in Florida, I mean, this, that, that, that switch or the end of this anomaly could be, could be happening. Well, I believe for decades, uh, and, and I've often written this, that at the end of the day, assimilated second, third, fourth generation Mexican-Americans, you have to distinguish from Cuban-Americans, uh, Puerto Rican-Americans and others. Yes. Mexican-Americans in particular will feel far more culturally at home with the uh, uh, constituents who were traditionally the Democratic Party, that is, the, the, from Andrew Jackson up to Lyndon Johnson, uh, white Southerners and uh, white Catholic so-called ethnics in the North and the Northeast, uh, particularly Irish Americans and Italian Americans. But just, it just seems to me it's a better cultural fit uh, than with the base of what is now the Democratic Party, which used to be the Republican Party. I know it's very confusing. Which <laughs> constituencies? But so the Democratic Party of 2021 is basically the Republican Party of 1971. Uh, and the issues of the, and the, these are liberal and moderate Republicans. They're not, uh, you know, the, the Buckley, Goldwater, Reagan conservatives. And the central issues of liberal Republicans in the 1960s and 1970s, civil rights, the environment, Planned Parenthood, abortion rights, uh, those were all Republican issues half a century ago. And so the former working class Democrats have taken over the, the electoral base anyway of the Republican Party. Elite Republicans have moved in the opposite direction uh, and captured the Democratic Party. And you know their culture uh, is one that is socially liberal, uh, but economically it tends to be pro-free market, pro-free trade benefit. From a reserve army of uh, labor, you know, uh, you know, kept loose and, and weak by high-scale immigration. Uh, it's kind of the Chamber of Commerce Republicans who are now becoming Chamber of Commerce Democrats. Mm. So, so I think that what you're going to see with uh, Hispanics in general, and it's a complex community, is uh, two things. One, 
according to uh, the people who studied this, including Richard Alba and Stephen Trejo, two academics, uh, Mexican Americans in particular tend to assimilate uh, and lose their identities at the same rate that European Americans did. So uh, by the 1970s, most white Americans were partly of British and partly of continental European or Irish descent. Uh, and at that point, they just ceased thinking of themselves as being hyphenated Americans. They were just, you know, Americans or generic white Americans. Uh, the same thing happening at about the same pace over generations with uh, Hispanics. Uh, so that's one thing that's going to happen. The, the idea of a separate Hispanic racial block is, is already fading in my view. Uh, the second thing that will happen is that uh, class divisions will be more important than ethnic divisions. So if, if you're a, you know, uh, uh, Hispanic, you know, social justice, you know, uh, warrior, uh, to use that term, you know, on, on a university campus, you're, you're going to be a progressive Democrat. Uh, if you're a working class rancher or small business owner in South Texas of Hispanic descent, uh, you're, you're going to probably be a Republican, you know, eventually vote like, you know, the other uh, uh, rural Americans who are very heavily Republican. So I think contrary to what we are told, racial divisions are actually weakening and fading in the U.S. over time, uh, and class divisions uh, are hardening. And to the extent that there's a culture war, it has more to do with class really than, than religion. People are not fighting over infant baptism versus adult baptism. Those used to be like big issues, but they're not. Uh, it tends to be the college-educated overclass uh, in its own peculiar culture versus a working-class culture, which now is pretty much been nationalized around the country. And it's, it's not white. I mean, it's, it's shared by uh, working-class Americans of all races in many ways. It's, it's interesting, though, isn't it, that people don't really want to talk about it like it's a class war, even if it sort of increasingly clearly is. And you're you're telling me it was my latest book, The New Class War. I know, I know. But I keep trying to change the subject to race. Well, I, I, uh, I, I hope that we can do that. I think, I think, lastly, I'd just like to ask you quickly, we, we started talking about the Biden administration. Is the Biden administration going to make the class war worse? Is the, is the class war going to intensify because of Biden and his, and his administration, because of Biden's administration? Well, so far, they, they certainly seem to have been trying to do so in two ways. One, the working class in the U.S., these are, which I define as non-college educated people. It's about two-thirds of the population. Uh, they live outside of big cities. Uh, they don't live in the countryside. Uh, as in Europe, it's, it's kind of the metropolitan periphery versus the metropolitan core. So most people live within a large metro area or region. But uh, the working class lives on the periphery, or the heartland, as I call it in the US, because they can't afford to live in downtown London or downtown Paris or downtown Austin or downtown New York. Uh, so if you look at the Biden administration's American Families Plan, which is the name for its uh, budget, essentially there's everything for urban dwellers, the downtowns and the uh, inner suburbs. And there's basically nothing for people living in rural areas and exurbs and uh, satellite towns, uh, except there's some, there's some infra infrastructure modernization, which is good. Uh, and, you know, I think what will happen is there will be a, uh, some kind of bipartisan deal on that. 
between the Democrats and the Republicans. But if you look at their other priorities, it's those of the big cities. Uh, it's, it's massively increasing the density of housing in existing downtown areas, benefits, urban real estate interests, obviously. Uh, and uh, it's justified by saying that, uh, well, this will allow you know, all of these uh, middle-class Americans to live downtown. Well, let me tell you something. The people who live in five-story apartment buildings, you know, built on demolished uh, single-family homes uh, in Austin and San Francisco, these are not going to be affluent professional couples. It's going to be their servants. It's going to be their working class, right? So this gets back to the class thing. Basically, uh, if you're an affluent professional couple in the United States, you want either a townhouse or, you know, a, a house, you know, for the most part, you know, they, they, you know, they have cars, they have houses. But on the other hand, you, you want your maid or your nanny or your gardener or these other servants, your food truck operator, to be able to live close enough to your exclusive gated suburban community or your downtown office tower that they can show up to provide their services. I'm sorry to be cynical about this. No, I like it. We need a robot slave class. Yeah, and the same is true with mass transit. So there's enormous money for mass transit in big cities in the, the Biden American Families Plan. Mm. In New York City, which is the exception, very few people, even affluent liberal Democrats, use mass transit. Uh, if you're an affluent professional Democrat, you Uber to work or you have your own car. Okay, that's just the way it is. Fewer than 5% of Americans you commute to work by mass transit uh, every day. Who does that? It's disproportionately the working class, particularly menial service workers, mm. they, nursing home aides, and so on, you know, take the bus, which is the major form of mass transit, uh, or in a few cities, you know, the metro or the trolley. So, uh, you know, you have to kind of look at budgets, and this is true of Republican budgets as well, uh, as x-rays of their coalitions. And in the case of the Biden budget, it shows you it's this upstairs, downstairs kind of Downton Abbey uh, budget. Yeah. So you, have to, you have to interpret a lot of the mass transit and the mass housing stuff. This is about downstairs. This is about the help. Yeah. And, and the people struggling on $400,000 a year. Uh, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. uh, Michael, it's so good to talk to you as always. Uh, I do hope you'll come on again soon. Uh, thanks. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review.